Hello and welcome to another edition of Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols and today I'm talking with Dr. Martin Borg from the Adelaide Radiation Therapy Centre and we're talking about an area of cancers which don't have the same publicity as some and they are cancer of the head and neck. Dr. Borg, thank you for giving us your time today. How common are cancers of the head and neck? Compared to prostate cancer and breast cancer, they are relatively uncommon, and, but they do constitute quite a significant proportion of our workload because of the nature of the, of the disease. Are the numbers on the rise? Yes, um, they, they certainly are, and I, I think probably this reflects the uh, habits of, of, of Australians over the past decades in terms of the amount of alcohol and people drink and, and cigarettes that they used to smoke. And are men more likely to be affected than women as a result of this? Uh, yes, mainly because men tended to drink and smoke more. But women are becoming affected by it? Uh, yes, especially uh, if you look at the years over which um, cigarette smoking sort of in women increased. Is there a specific age group and do we know why? Is this because of their habit of smoking and, and drinking? Yes, it tends to occur in, 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 in men and women in, in their 50s and 60s and I suppose that reflects the time they've spent, uh, so to speak, smoking and, and, and drinking and it takes some time for the malignant changes to occur and, and for the cancers to develop. So it's a, a slow developing cancer? Uh, no, the change, changes take some time to develop, but then once the cancer develops, it, it can be quite aggressive and can grow, grow very quickly. The term head and neck cancers is an overall term for quite a number of areas which can be affected, isn't it? Will you tell me some of areas that are affected under this label? Yeah, that's, that, that's right. The, by far the commonest um, cancer in the head and neck is the squamous cell carcinoma, and that, that's the one that's uh, related to cigarettes and alcohol. Um, and, and these tend to occur in the aerodigestive tract. That's, that's the mouth, the tongue, the, the pharynx, the space behind the mouth, and this air around the vocal cords, and then the esophagus as you go further down. And the symptoms of, that you suggest, of course, can be a real problem just in everyday living. Yes, they, they, and they can be quite debilitating. So they, they often... Uh, particularly with the more advanced uh, presentations, will have a lot of pain and they won't be able to drink or, or um, eat and they'll lose weight. And, and pain can be quite severe, particularly when the tumour spreads into the, in, into the inside and onto the bones. So if a patient presented with a sore throat that seemed to persist, would this be an early sign? Would you take into consideration that that was one of the symptoms they had? Yes, yeah, particularly if it doesn't respond to a, a course of antibiotics then it, it needs um, further investigation. What sort of tests would you do? If there's a general practitioner who's concerned about a, a, an ulcer or a lump um, that, that's not responding to antibiotics, the, the first thing would be to get an ENT specialist to see the patient. And then? And then if, if, if the specialist is, is concerned about a lesion, he can biopsy that, take a piece and send it off to the pathologist. And, and if there are any lumps in the neck, that can be... Uh, neither. There's a, uh, a syringe can be put into the lump and the cells taken out and looked at under a microscope and then the patient will be referred for a, a CT scan and that will map out where the tumour is. And whereabouts do you come into this or, or your department come into this to 
to take over from the ENT specialist? Well, once once the diagnosis is made, um, then we generally meet at a multidisciplinary meeting with uh, with the surgeon and the medical oncologist and speech pathologist, dietitians, dentists, and so on, and 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 then we decide on which is the better approach for the patient, and obviously in consultation with the patient. And, and some tumors are better treated with surgery first and, and may not need uh, any radiation afterwards, but some may need radiation after surgery, particularly when they're advanced, or, or they may be better treated with primary radiotherapy with, with or without chemotherapy, leaving surgery for any re- recurrences. What other symptoms would a patient have if we take, for example, the sore throat? Would they have problems in swallowing and, and talking? Yes, if, if the mass gets bigger, it will usually uh, occlude the passageway, so the patient will find it difficult to swallow solids initially and then liquids. Um, if it involves the voice box, their voice will change, and, and um, eventually they may have problems with breathing, may have a wheeze. Uh, they may have toothache or pain referred to their ear and jaw pain. When you're looking at somebody with a sore throat, will you will stay in that area of for the time being, what other examinations, what other parts of the mouth and throat would you be looking at? Would you expect to find problems? If if you've got sore throat in one part of the mouth, that's where you direct your investigations. But you would look at the rest of the mouth, particularly around the tongue, uh, on the floor of the mouth and at the back near the tonsils and the palate. Um, It it, it is not uncommon to see someone with... Uh, normal appearances in a number of places in the mouth, although it's uncommon to have more than one cancer in one place. If they had the, the cancer in the throat, you wouldn't expect to find them anywhere else? No, it's unusual, but you'd want to look at so in particular to determine the extent of the cancer, because it can obviously grow upwards behind the nose or downwards behind the throat and forwards into the mouth, and it can spread to the lymph glands in the neck. I'm talking today with Dr. Martin Borg about head and neck cancers. If we stay just a little bit longer with mouth and throat cancers, how much danger is there of a patient losing their ability to talk? Does it often go into the voice box? It's not uncommon for the tumours to arise in the region of the voice box. and If if it's caught early, then the voice box can, can often be... Uh, spared and, 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 and the patient will keep his, his or her voice. But if, if the presentation is delayed or, or the diagnosis is delayed and the tumour is advanced, then the only hope the patient has in keeping the voice box is if, if uh, the radiation can clear the cancer without the need for surgery. And how would a, a patient cope if he did in fact lose his voice box? They'll often end up with a opening um, in the lower part of the neck, um, a a stoma or a tracheostomy. And and they often will have a a voice prosthesis fitted there by the ENT specialist and the speech pathologist and then then taught to speak using these um, devices. So they will have a voice, but it would be a sort of mechanized uh, voice. Does the the device they use, does that look like a, a rather larger cigar? Ah uh, yes, there <laughs> yes. It, uh, it it looks a bit awkward. Uh, pa- patients obviously do get used to it, but it's it's uh, it would, they'd be obviously better off with a normal voice box. Mm. Mm. 
What other problems can occur? I mean, I mean obviously it's going to affect their ability to swallow. How do you get around that one? Well, initially, um, they'd have to have a tube placed uh, through the mouth into the stomach or directly into the stomach. Uh, one, the first one's called a nasogastric tube and the second one's called, in short, a peg. And, and, and they'll be taught to self-feed by a dietitian. They'll have protein supplements like Ensure or, or ProShore or Sustigen. Mm-hmm. Um, but eventually the aim would be to treat the tumor to allow the patients to swallow again. Uh, unfortunately, a lot of the treatments we use do cause swallowing difficulties, uh, such as that, uh, secondary to dry, dryness of the mouth or, or the scarring they get with the treatments. And, and quite a few of them will end up with persisting problems with swallowing, and they may not be able to eat certain solid foods and so on. Mm. Until you describe the fact that their mouth can get quite dry, I was wondering how they would cope with saliva. They, they wouldn't have a problem trying to swallow their own saliva? Not, not unless there's a complete obstruction, and, mm. and, um, um, but, but then they'd be, having, they'd be probably undergoing surgery to remove the obstruction. Um, the, there are some drugs one can use to, to reduce the amount of saliva in that, that situation. But generally, if they have radiation therapy and, and the type of radiation that, that cannot spare the saliva glands, then they, they will often end up with a permanent dry mouth. Mm. So how do they get around that in everyday living? Uh, they'll have to drink fluids uh, quite often, particularly when, the, when they're eating. Um, they they um, will have to adapt the sort of foods that they, they will ordinarily mm-hmm. take. Um, I mean, you always have to compare that with, with an, uh, having the alternative, which is an uncontrolled cancer. And, and there are mm-hmm. modern radiation techniques that, that can spare the salivary glands in a number of situations. But the chances of them getting stuck into a good old-fashioned steak are, are not very good, are they? They're limited with the very advanced tumours, not, yeah. not the early tumours. Yeah. Would therapy start, uh, radiation therapy, would that start immediately after surgery? Or was the time for the surgery to heal before they kick off again? Yeah, we try and find the balance between the two, but we generally would prefer to start the radiation around four, four weeks or so after the operation, mm. and certainly not later than six weeks. Now, not all cancers of the head are in the throat, of course. What about those that form in either the inside or the outside of the ear? Um, what would the doctor look for in the inner ear, and what symptoms would the patient have? They're different to the sort of cancers we're talking about before. Mm-hmm. They, um, these patients will often present with impaired hearing and, and pain, and sometimes they may have a discharge, uh, some fluid coming out of their ear, which may be bloodstained. Um, and, and those are the commoner symptoms. And then once it was diagnosed, what sort of treatment would be given in general? And I realise that these questions are taken as a general thing rather than an, you know, a, a specific thing. Yes, for, for the commoner middle ear tumours, the, the primary treatment is surgery and then depending on the extent of the tumour and, and, and whether the surgery could remove all the tumour, then, then one would think of radiotherapy with with or without chemotherapy after that. And would necessarily, would the patient lose their hearing? With with the advanced tumours, they're almost certainly going to lose their hearing, um, either at the time of surgery or or subsequent to that. And if they they lost their hearing, they would need to go through 
occupational therapy and all of those things to to combat that? Yes, although although um, I would think most most patients will have normal hearing on the other ear. All right. Okay. Because uh, with only even with, with from the radiation point of view, we'd, we'd ensure that that we'd spare the contralateral hearing process. With um, with after the surgery, would they need to have reconstruction of the side of the head, uh, or would it just be in the inner ear? Again, it depends on the extent of the disease. With the very large tumors, they would need some form of reconstruction and grafting to cover the surgical defects, the space that's left behind after the tumor is removed. And sometimes the tumors grow into into the adjacent bone, so if, if surgery requires removal of that, then they need grafting to fill the spaces. Mm. With the signs outside the head, would that be just sore to touch and, and something like a, a separating sore? Would that could that be a, a an outside sign? It may well be. You may have um, a lump or an ulcer that's that's tender and, and may have an offensive smell and, and may be bleeding. Mm. If the cancer was to form between the bones of the skull and the skin, would that be classed as cancer of the head, or would that come under something quite different? If it's out, if it's outside the skull and and it's as uh, it's quite common in, in Australia for, for elderly people in particular, particularly in states like Queensland, to develop skin cancers. Mm. Um, and they come in all shapes and sizes, so you, you may find some of the larger ones that become ulcerated and painful, but they would be part of the head and neck uh, scenario. So do cancers form between the skull and the brain? Um Yes, you can. These are, are different tumours to the sort of head and neck tumours we're talking about. Mm. Uh, and the commonest would be tumours that develop in the lining of the brain and the meninges. Mm. And, and one of the commoner tumours there are well, the meningiomas. Uh, these are often treated with surgery and, and may require radiation therapy. But they come under a, a totally different area from, from what we're actually talking about today. That's right, yes. Yeah. You're listening to Wellbeing. I'm Iris Nichols and I'm talking today to Dr. Martin Borg from the Adelaide Radiation Therapy Centre. Suppose we have a, a patient with perhaps one or more of these cancers. What sort of follow-up would be available to them? Well, after they've completed treatment for a typical head and neck cancer, we initially follow them up very regularly on a weekly basis. Um, we often alternate in a multidisciplinary sense. So the, if they've had surgery, radiation, and chemotherapy, then the one week they'll be seen by the surgeon, then the radiation oncologist and medical oncologist the week after, for instance. And that's done for the first couple of months. And uh, gradually f appointments are, follow are extended onto a three-monthly basis, four-monthly, and then uh, six-monthly after two years on a yearly basis. And they'll often need... Um, a scan, often a PET scan with a CT scan uh, after two or three months after treatment and then that's repeated either six months six months later or 12 months later. And some of them would need blood tests uh, uh, depending on the chemotherapy they've had and, and, and from the radiation point of view they'll need thyroid function tests and if they've had swallowing difficulties um, we'd want to assess their electrolytes and and other things to ensure their uh, nutrition is adequate. And is there a risk of the cancers reoccurring 
Is it a high risk? It's very stage dependent. Um, with the more advanced tumours, um, yes, I mean, with the stage 4 patients, the risk of the cancer coming back is as high as 85%. Um, so again, with follow-up, uh, that's one of one of the reasons why follow-up is, is uh, undertaken on such a mm. regular basis. And the other reason we want to follow patients up is particularly those who still have their teeth, is to um, ensure they, they, they maintain adequate oral hygiene and mm. dental care. I guess this would um, would be a problem. They would they necessarily know that they they're having trouble with their teeth without actually looking at them. You know, would they have toothache or or problems with their jaw after treatment? Yes, mm. initially, initially the, 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 the changes can be quite innocuous and, and subtle. Um, but the, the dentists, uh, most centres, and not all centres, tertiary centres in Australia will have a very a very good dental backup and. Um, and these patients are very carefully followed up. Mm. Would would it be a good thing for them to keep their own teeth, or would they be advised to have them removed? If it, if they've got poor dentition, they're usually advised to have them removed. But if the teeth are healthy to start off with, they're usually um, advised to hang on to them for as long as possible. They, following treatment, they often do get changes that worsen with time and they may end up having to have their treat removed eventually but it's always better if you can keep them as long as possible and I guess that goes for all of us doesn't it yes <laughs> what sort of emotional support do do these patients have is there a counseling service for available just for you know this particular type of, of cancer I believe that most states do offer support I mean, in South Australia there's a support group um, through the cancer council consisting mainly of patients who've had this sort of treatment uh, and they're always willing to, to assist patients about to go to treatment or have had treatment. Mm. These um, counselling services would be available for the family as well? Yes. Yeah. Once a patient's had, um, had their surgery and they're sort of back with their family, does the family get advice and, and help on, on how to help the patient? Um. You know, if they need to have some, some special instructions on, for example, how to provide the, the meals and, and that sort of thing, that's available to the carer? Yes, we, we usually make sure the family are involved. Um, it's a bit more difficult for patients who live on their own, but in general, uh, most, most patients will have a family or friend who's involved in the whole process, um, especially those who, who continue on uh, nasogastric or peg feeding. Mm. Mm. And are there available self-help groups um, in most communities? Yeah, yes, I would, I would think so. It, it mm. may be, it's been slow in coming for head and neck cancers because it's a relatively uncommon cancer. And, um, but but uh, over the last few years, we've had a number of groups being set up with this in mind. And what sort of proportion of of the cancer patients end up with um, breast cancer and prostate cancer are fairly common. What sort of proportion have head and neck, proportion of the, um, of the community end up with head or neck? Uh, that's good to answer the question. I, I guess it's about 10% 10, 10 of all cancer patients mm. are probably head and neck cancer patients. So it is comparatively small. Yes. Mm. If someone has one of, of these cancers that we've been talking about in the head or the neck, 
Are they likely to develop other cancers such as lung cancer? Yes, that's not uncommon, um, particularly those who survived the um, uh, initial head and neck cancer uh, because the, uh, this is often associated with a history of smoking cigarettes and the risk of developing a second tumour as were either in the esophagus uh, in those who have drunk in a significant amount of alcohol or in the lung is, is, is not uncommon. So would would it necessarily follow up that they'd have to have extra checks to, for their lungs? Um, that's usually part of the follow-up process for the head and neck cancer anyway. It's, it's hard to show, for those who haven't had any cancer but who are smokers, it's hard to show a benefit for screening mm. lung cancer, although recently there was a study that suggested it might be of benefit. Would the cancer slightly turn up anywhere else? For example, if it was a woman smoking, could she end up with breast cancer? Um, no, breast, I don't think... The two separate things. But, but there are other sites that, that um, may be more prone to cancer in smokers, such as bladder cancer, for instance. Oh, okay. Uh, and yeah. cancers of the esophagus, uh, gullet, and apart from lung and head and neck. Mm. Um, I guess stomach cancers and cancer of the bowel would also be one you'd be aware of looking for. Well, but, um, there are other factors that are sort of tied in with those two cancers. Mm. We've touched briefly on, on some of the cancers, but what about the future? We hear a lot of about research into breast and prostate cancer, but how much research is being done into head and neck in comparison? Uh, not, not as much, I would think. Uh, unfortunately, the funding is probably not not, not as good. But uh, there, there have been quite a few inroads in, in head and neck cancer, um, both in terms of the improvement in techniques in surgery and radiation therapy and, and, and the uh, acknowledgement of recent years that chemotherapy has an important role. And, and uh, very recently with, with the uh, PBS listing of Herbotax, so, I mean, there's, 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 and, and the other thing that I think helped too is the, the acknowledgement that this is a disease that needs to be treated in a multidisciplinary setting, and that, uh, particularly from a surgical point of view, there's a, a sub-specialization uh, required to within the treatment of these patients. But I guess, in, in general, the public is not aware so much of head and neck cancers of any, as any others. Um, it's not one that we hear a lot about, is it? No, no, not at all. No. Do you think that there should be more publicity about it? I, w- I would think so, p- particularly because a, a lot of the factors that are thought to promote this cancer, um, such as cigarettes, uh, smoking and, and excess alcohol intake, can be prevented. There's um, an advert on on television and on billboards and things where it shows a, um, a lass with some really bad mouth cancers and things and the wording that goes with it basically is this is what can happen if you get cancer because you smoke. Are those the sorts of notices that we should be putting out for the, for the general community? Well, I'm told they do help, um, I, I, certainly for the youngsters, um, uh, teenagers and young adolescents, um, um, something like that would, would help um, and they should apply that to, to excess alcohol as well. If you could pick up something that you felt would really draw attention to the general public about the dangers of um, developing head and neck cancers, 
what would you do? Well, I'd educate the public on the on this problems with with um, excess alcohol intake and, and cigarette smoking and pot, and um, and and show them where you, one could could end up with in in, in this situation. It's it's uh, it's also important to to let patients know what they need to do, or rather than patients um, or the ordinary person in the street know what they need to do when they develop symptoms that uh, particularly symptoms that don't go away and, and what sort of treatment they should be expecting from 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 their physicians um, and so that diagnoses are not delayed and, and tumors are picked up earlier on why, why there's no mammography screening equivalents that you could use in this situation it's important to diagnose the tumors early so that the treatment is, is highly successful with limited morbidity if if you were asked to suggest a symptom that people should be aware of um, like the lump in the breast or um, the one they've got running for lung cancer and prostate cancer what would be the the main thing that you would would like to see initiated to bring people's attention to it throat pain would Mm. be one Um, there, there are quite a few in head and neck but throat pain or lump in the neck uh, or an ulcer in the mouth, uh, and other things like changing voice. And just finally, any quick words of advice to us all, apart from smoking and, and drinking? <laughs> well, I, alcohol is okay in moderation, but anything in excess is something to be uh, aware of. Um, but if you're concerned about a symptom, it's always best to check with your general physician, general practitioner, um, and, and rather than leave it too late. In other words, don't don't hold back. Go and check it out yes. and get a negative rather than, than wait and leave it too late. That's right, yes. Yeah. My guest today has been Dr. Martin Borg from the Adelaide Radiation Therapy Centre. Dr. Borg, thank you for taking the time to talk to me and giving us the information. And let's hope that as a result, perhaps even of, of this program, that people will become more aware of the dangers of head and neck cancers. Thank you for listening and until next time we meet, this is Iris Nichols on behalf of all the team wishing you well.